Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Uh, This is a very great day for me because I am sitting across from somebody who is not an asshole. (laughs) A person who is a nice guy in Hollywood, and uh, which is pretty, pretty amazing to find uh you literally it's like one percent of one percent now don't get me wrong (laughs) there's a lot of people in hollywood who believe that they are nice people they look in the mirror as they're getting ready and they get out of the shower and they think hey i'm a good guy but you know people on the outside might not say that and but this man Quan Fung. I always, when, whenever I met Quan Fung, I want to tell you something. The first time I was scheduled to meet Quan Fung, I think it was at Fox, I thought to myself, literally, of a routine that I used to do when I was a stand up comic. And I used to do this routine where I used to say, and again, this is before I met him, I knew what descent he was, whatever, whatever. Uh, country he was from which is vietnam i didn't know that at the time i just heard the name and initially the first thing that popped into my mind was a routine that i did as a comedian that i had hadn't done in years uh, and i hadn't remembered in years and it was a routine where i used to say uh, hawaii 50 was my favorite show 
of all time. I used to love the music. It was so exciting and just invigorating and almost macho, you know. And then you'd have the credits would come on with that voiceover guy. It would be like Jack Lord as Steve McGarrett. And then it'd be like, you know, James MacArthur as Dano. Then it got weird. <laughs> you know, Cam Fong as Chin Ho. Zulu as Kono. I'm thinking to myself, why the fuck did they change their names? You know, who the hell in America is going to know? And they always gave the guy, the Hawaiian guy, the, 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 the shittiest jobs. It would always be like, you know, uh, Dano, uh, there's a homicidal uh, rapist. Uh, loose on the island. Um, let's go get a cup of coffee. Uh, chin, put on this dress and walk down Maui Boulevard. You know what I mean? They always did the worst things for these people. And so I thought to myself, am I going to meet somebody who's actually Hawaiian? I didn't know what the story was. <laughs> anyway, but uh, <laughs> what I normally do here is I normally tell a story that's sort of like a six degrees of separation. And uh, when I sit across from my guest, I normally, you know, something comes to me. And the story that comes to me when I look across from you, I think it's an important story of if you're out there and you're an, a young artist or uh, in any profession you're at and you want to work and make it to the next level, what, what it takes to get there. And... I'll start off the story by saying that I was uh, at the Sundance Film Festival one year uh, where uh, Jay Moore was hosting the events. And he took me aside and he said, Barry, I've never recommended anybody to you before. I've never told you to represent anybody. I've never gone out of my way to do that. I don't know why. And he was the longest-running client I ever had at the time and still is. I've worked with him probably 24 years, uh, maybe almost 25 years. And he said, but there's a person here you have to meet. She's got something. Mm -hmm. There's something special there. And I said, well, why do you say that? He said, because, you know, you know how I always go at people and I'm always like, trying to get to them and busting their balls or whatever. But every time I go at this girl, she comes back with another line or she thinks about things and comes back to me and she goes toe to toe with me every time. And every time I think that I've gotten to a position where I buried her, she comes back and she hits me harder and harder and harder to prove, I guess to herself and to me like, Hey, uh, we have a tennis match going here. I know I'm the underdog, but I'm going to take you down. Mm. I'm going to pull the upset. <laughs> and that young girl was Whitney Cummings. Mm. And so I met her. I'll never forget. She was wearing those boots that women wear sometimes that have like the long like fur coming off of them. It's like so every time she walked, there'd be this fluff shaking. Uh, on her shoes uh, and uh, she had this magnetic personality and she I guess she just graduated from Penn a, a couple of years earlier and, and had applied for um, a job 
I or auditioned for a job on trading spaces as the, I guess the host, uh, and she lost out to that woman Paige, I think mm -hmm. was the host. Mm -hmm. And she'd come to LA and she got this correspondent gig that probably paid her $6 in a bucket of chicken, but she wanted to make her mark and got a chance to go to Sundance and interview people and use her chemistry. And she was doing a great job. And I talked to her and I met with her and I decided we decided to work together or she decided to work with me. Um, and throughout the first four and a half, five years, it was, it was fascinating because when you're working with a young person who believes in themselves, um, it's an amazing thing. And we've all done that in any profession we've been in. There's the people that you work with who you can tell right away when you sit down with them or you meet them, okay, this person is going for it. Mm -hmm. And then there's people who are just working the job, taking the paycheck. And then there's people who you have no idea how come they haven't been fired yet. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I met her and I... I have this thing sometimes that can't be quantified in a court of law, mm -hmm. but this thing when I shake somebody's hand, that's like the it's it's like the dead zone. I I can see the future, and I know that sounds crazy, <laughs> but it just happens. And and I shook her hand, and I immediately said, you know, I I think that you would be a great stand-up comedian. I think you'd be a great actress. I think you'd be a great writer. Have you done any of those things? And she said, no, no, I've just been doing this stuff. I said, well, you should really think about it. Now, that was a double-edged sword because when somebody's doing something that they love and they're doing it well, and then you're telling them that, that there's three things that they could do that are amazing, that's a, that's a huge uh, daunting task uh, to, to, to do well in all those areas. And to get the opportunities in all those areas when you're not necessarily skilled in those areas and you haven't put your 10,000 hours in. Mm -hmm. But she utilized her personality in a way that was amazing. And there were times during those four and a half, five years where there were some really difficult times. Because to be honest with you, I don't even know how she made a living. Just like I don't know how most of the artists, actors, and actresses make it in this business. I don't know how they pay their rent. I don't, I, yeah, I have no idea at all. But she did it. But there were many times when she'd come into my office and, it, you know, be very, very sad about the state of the affairs of the business and how many auditions she'd get and things of that nature. And there were many times where we'd get on the phone with agents of hers and like there'd be a theatrical agent, a film and television agent for acting, and they'd want to get on a conference call. And I guess sometimes as a manager, you don't always do the right things. And sometimes on those phone calls, like the agents would say, OK, well, let's strategize what we need to do to do this. And I just say on the phone, I'd say, look, you know, there's no strategy. You know, your job is to get her in the rooms in film and au television auditions. That's it. Mm -hmm. You don't have to strategize anything. Just get her in the fucking rooms. That's your role. Um, I know my role 
and uh, everybody, Whitney knows her role, mm -hmm. but that's all you got to do is create opportunities. But for a lot of young artists, the most difficult part is finding people that believe in them and will get them in those rooms and will get them into situations where they can, their script can be sent somewhere. And it, it, it's, it's this frustrating thing where you have these relationships and agencies want to sign you and they do sign you. But then a lot of times you're passed off to a younger person that's as young and experienced as you are. And then you're sitting there with, hoping to get somewhere with somebody who can't open any, up any doors for you. And that happens a lot. And the weirdest thing about agencies in this town, the biggest agencies that you'll find is that and it's the oddest thing. When there's a young talent that's brilliant who has never made any money, it's very difficult to get the agency behind you in all areas because they don't see any evidence that you've ever made any money. They're taking the chance, but it's like you're a kernel of popcorn. Mm -hmm. And, you know, whether you pop or not, whatever, and, and we'll see what happens and we'll create some opportunities for you. But if you don't book your first audition or your second audition, or make us any money in a, in a year or so, then you're off the list. Mm -hmm. But I remember making a call to a guy that uh, I really believed in as an agent, one of the greatest agents in film, television, reality, comedy, every area he waded into. He wasn't the kind of guy that you would say fit in with these other guys who were a different breed at the agency. Um, so even though I knew he, in my mind, he was a rock star there, I think probably he might have been a little bit of an underdog like Whitney, even though he'd done amazing things. But when you're in a big agency, amazing things are relative because if you're representing Steven Spielberg and, and, and Tom Cruise – those amazing things tend to be dwarfed by the bigger things of the company uh, that might happen. Mm -hmm. But he was involved in, you know, American Idol, and he was involved in Jamie Foxx doing film and television, and he, he was just involved in every aspect. And his name was Steve Smook. And I always felt he was a guy who, he, if I believed in somebody... I could always bring them to him, and he would say, okay, I I get it. Mm -hmm. I will, you know, I will take a leap of faith here. And that's what he did with Whitney. And together, uh, his company and myself and Whitney, I feel like things started to go better. And there was more momentum, and Whitney was, was regenerated and excited about things. And even though she wasn't booking up tons of acting jobs or she wasn't lighting the world on fire as a stand-up comedian and uh, as a writer, she wasn't necessarily making that much money. She was just kept churning stuff out and kept coming to us with things and kept coming. And even if she got the door slammed in her face, keep going and keep going and keep going. And... There was one thing that happened with her that that was the turning point. And uh, I apologize for this taking so long, but I think this is really important for our talk. She told me that she wanted to be involved in the roasts. She told me that she could 
do something. And I had brought up to her earlier before that, that I thought that she'd be a great roaster. But again, she'd already been working on so many different things to ask you to do, to ask a person to do roasting, which is a whole different muscle and writing for roasting. It was incomprehensible. So I don't think she really necessarily was as interested in doing it at, at, at first, but uh, in a short time, it became very exciting to her. And she started writing roast jokes and putting packages together, and I sent them in. And she got a job as a writer on the roast. At the time, I think she was the only female writer on the roast. And unbelievably, she wrote a comedy piece for Snoop Dogg, a rap and comedy, where literally that roast, he was the highlight of the entire roast, and the guy was like literally practically unconscious on so many bags of chronic and but he went up and he put every comic to shame Mm. and he or she had worked with him and was writing Mm. and it was like holy shit this is insane so then the goal was to get her a spot on the roast but they weren't really giving spots to young people and I pushed and pushed and pushed and Because what happened is that she was the kind of person, I guess her comedy or whatever it was, people weren't really believing in her. So like Comedy Central did this like almost like young comedians thing called Premium Blend where they book 65 comedians every uh, year and they passed on her the first year and they passed on her the second year and they passed on her the third year. And I'm like thinking to myself, I, I'm a comedy guy mm-hmm. and I can't get these people to book a five minute person. I thought like I, there's something, there's gotta be something I like, did this person kill people in a different <laughs> lifetime. I just like, couldn't believe it. And for Whitney, when Whitney would come to my office, I didn't blame her for being upset. She came to me because I was a comedy guy. I'd done like, you know, 15, 20 hour specials. I mean, I comedy was my thing. And these people at Comedy Central, they just wouldn't, they didn't get that particular thing. And that's cool because comedy is subjective. It's like music. Some people like Nine Inch Nails. Some people liked Barry Manilow, whatever. But, you know, we're talking about five to seven minutes here. Yeah. Even if you do badly, you can sweeten it, you can do whatever couldn't get it so that's why the roast was so important to push for push for it and i found out a friend of mine tom arnold was doing a roast of uh steve tish for a benefit Mm -hmm. at the beverly wilshire or something like that and i asked him if he would do me a favor and put whitney on and he said i don't know her i said just do me a favor just put her on and film it for me i need it for something and tom was amazing and he did me that favor and he put her on and she destroyed the place (laughs) i mean it was an unbelievable and peter berg was there and just destroyed the place (laughs) and now i had my tool as a manager Mm -hmm. and i still got passes from comedy central on a lot of things and then i said you know what I have to do something that 
might cause some friction with me at Comedy Central. I have to send this video link to Doug Herzog, mm. who was the president of the network. Mm. So instead of sending it to the people that were in charge of the roast and doing whatever, right. I sent it to the Doug. And Doug watched it, and he emailed me back, and he said, this is great. I'm going to um, talk to the group. And the next thing I know, I had an offer for Whitney wow. to be a um, roaster. Wow. Very exciting. It was the Larry the Cable Guy roast. <laughs> and here's where things go a little crazy in our business. So it's all set. We're all excited. Whitney's excited. She's getting prepared for her big, but she's working like months in advance. She has the whole roast down. She's there. She's ready. A month before the roast, I get a call from one of the executives on the roast, Elizabeth Porter, I believe it was at the time. Uh, Barry, uh, listen, um, Whitney, uh, um, we're not going to be able to use her for the roast. I'm sorry, uh, we have everybody we need. I said, but Elizabeth Doug gave me his word that we were going to do the roast, and, and that's the thing, you know, we're going to do the roast. She's like, uh, it's not going to happen this time, but uh, I guarantee I'll put her on the next one. So now you have an artist that's been waiting all year, worked so hard, finally got it, and again, the door slams in her face. And I wasn't going to go to Doug again right. because I felt like then I would never be able to talk to these people again. They would never talk to me. I had to play the game of the politics and have the confidence in myself that I was going to get her on the next one. And true to form, the next one was Joan Rivers. And she was a year stronger in stand-up. And it was the best thing that ever happened because when she got up there, she was ready and she stole the roast from people who've been doing it years and years and years. Like, you know, and all of them who were on that dais would admit yeah. that she was the person who stole it. And after that roast, miraculously, all the executives were all over her. They started calling. Can we do a deal? Can we get her in here? Does she want to write her own show? What does she want to do? She created the heat. She was prepared. She was the underdog. And she blew them away. We got an overall deal to Comedy Central. Very exciting deal for her to write her own show. Kent Alterman had just come in. Doug was there. They were supporting it. In the deal, I wouldn't sign the deal until they gave her an hour special. Mm -hmm. They wanted her to do a premium blend and then a half hour special. I said, no, she's going to bypass everything now and get an hour special. They gave her an hour special, her own show, to develop everything. I felt as a manager that it was one of the greatest uh, things that I had ever been able to do and orchestrate with somebody else's great talent and power and ingenuity. And true to form in our business, she turns in the script like Whitney does a month, two, three months earlier. It's amazing. They like it. They say, give us a month. A month goes by. We don't have an answer. Give us another month. 
And after waiting about two or three months to figure out what was happening, Comedy Central passes mm -hmm. and says, we're, uh, we're not going to do that uh, show. We're sorry. But we will develop, if you want, we'll do a backup deal and we'll develop like a Tosh.0 kind of show for her where she can do her own thing. But by that time, Steve Smook had been uh, working his magic on the outside and we together as a team were strategizing and sending scripts out. And CAA represented Scott Stuber, who's a great uh, movie producer who was now doing a new deal, I believe, for television with NBC. And who do we find working for Scott Stuber? My old friend, Quan <laughs> Fung. And she takes some meetings over there. She's prepared as anybody could be. She goes through the pitch. They work together. They love it. They want to do an overall deal under their deal at NBC, and it's magic. And we went in and pitched, and um, this is the part of the story that I've told before, where you have to have balls as an artist, and you have to know your place and take risks. We're sitting in the lobby, Quan, Steve Smook, and myself, and Jeff Engel, the guy we're meeting with, comes by and he's about 15, 20 minutes late and he's running by. He's like, I'm sorry. Listen, just give me a minute and I'll be right with you. And Whitney stands up. Never met the guy before. Quan, myself, and Steve are like sitting there. We're not really sure what's happening. She gets up right in his face, six inches away. Never met the guy before looks at him with that sexual tension that she could give and do and true to form like she did with Jay Moore so many years earlier. She looks him in the eye and the first thing she says to him are these words. My God, look at you. You're like a member of Hitler's master race. And he looked at her and he smiled and laughed a little. He says, nice to meet you. And he walked <laughs> in his office. And that's when I knew that it didn't matter what we did in that office. He was going to spend the money, write the check for her to write that script. Little did he know, Whitney Cummings had probably already written the script and probably already gone over it note-wise with Quan Fung about 17 times before he even went in the meeting. Because she was always prepared, always ready, always took risks. And if you're out there, you should know that no matter how many doors slam in your face, no matter how many times you get knocked down, just keep getting up, keep putting in the work, and you will always win. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Now? Out of the air! 
people on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in showbiz and you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Here we go. You're fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. You know, before I get started, I want to take a minute to let you know that I receive a lot of correspondence from companies wanting to sponsor the show, and I just... I've just avoided it since we started. You know, I always thought that it was kind of weird, and I thought that maybe people would think a certain way if I I did that. And there was this one guy who kept reaching out to me, kept reaching out to me over and over again, persistent. His name was Michael Purcell. And finally, he traveled to L.A., and he said, you know, i got to meet you. So I met the guy, and... Uh, I sat down and he told me that 10 years ago he created a company called Global Cash Card where he figured out a way to take payroll, make it paperless for companies of any size, and then allow somebody's weekly salary to be instantly like loaded anytime, anywhere onto their own personal Visa payroll card for free. So I was a little bit intrigued, so I went online and I did some research. And I found out that it cost around $3 for every paycheck to be cut by a company. So that means if you're like a you know medium-large company, whatever, and you have a 1,000 checks you're writing every week, uh, do the math. It was like $12,000 a month you could save or $135K a year on this global cash card. So I called the guy back and I said, well, this is something that everybody can benefit from. So I decided to sponsor him and his company. So do yourself a favor. Go to globalcashcard.com, schedule a live demo on their system, speak to Michael Purcell, see how easy it is for your company to start saving big money today. And trust me, you'll be glad you did. Welcome back to Industry Standard. This is awesome. Again, (laughs) sitting across from a guy I've known forever met me when I had a long hair, a ponytail, <laughs> cowboy boots. Now I have short hair and cowboy boots. You probably so, still have the cowboy boots. I, was uh, I probably do have yes. the cowboy boots. It's pretty sad. So let me introduce my guest today. Uh, 
There's a lot to talk about with this guy, but I'll just tell you his um, trajectory. Uh, he's a young man who started at NBC as an assistant and went on to working in the Saturday morning platform that they had going with a man named Peter Engel, who uh, was one of the creators of Saved by the Bell and had six shows on television that went 100 episodes or more. And Quan Fung was involved in uh, many of them, including yes. Saved by the Bell, the new class. He told me not to fuck that up, and I did. <laughs> Saved by the Bell, the new class, Hang Time, and City Guys. Uh, then he moved on to Fox and Development, where he was involved in developing uh, scripted comedy and eventually drama as well. Then he moved on to the studio at Fox at 20th Television uh, Productions, uh, where he worked in comedy there. And then he went on to work with Scott Stuber, a tremendous film producer under his own television deal at NBC Universal. And now, presently, he is the president of scripted television at Slingshot Global Media, which is a new independent TV studio based in Los Angeles that develops, produces, finances, and, and distributes premium scripted content on linear and digital platforms throughout the world. Slingshot is putting together an initial slate of projects from acclaimed novelists, filmmakers, writers, producers, and actors to take the global market in the latter part of 2014. Quan is a veteran television producer and executive who, prior to coming aboard to Slingshot, as we talked about, held various creative roles at all these companies. And among the series he developed are the Emmy Award-winning shows like House... How I Met Your Mother, and in my mind, the mother load, <laughs> Arrested Development. Also the executive producer of Whitney on NBC. So please welcome my guest today, the man, the non-Hawaiian, non <laughs> Quan Fung, everybody. <laughs> Thanks, Barry. It's a it's an honor to sit in your seat. Look at this. Oh, this is so it's fantastic. Fun. Yeah. I'm sorry my cold open uh, <laughs> almost put you to sleep. It's uh, That was long. I didn't expect that to be long. No, I, but I, I actually love that story because it's, you know, you talked about, you know, I always tell people and tell people that uh, I relate to underdogs and the fact that, you know, you see Whitney as an underdog. I see Whitney as an underdog. That's what made me love her and love her voice. You know, where, where I think a lot of people look at her and go, she's young. She's pretty. She's well-educated. How, how is it possible that, you know, she is an underdog? But I think we all are in our own way, wherever we come from. And I think that's sort of what I related to, to her story. No, it's true. And, you yeah. know, they say a lot of times, you know, even the people who get to the top, uh, as Whitney will, prob will probably attest uh, when she does this podcast or, you know, if you talk to her, if you know her in an inter interview, you know, I think everybody's heard this. It's 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 harder staying there than it is getting there which is hard to believe mm -hmm. but you you have so much pressure on you when you get there when you're an underdog the only pressure you have is you have in your mind a, a vision of when you're going to get to the next level when you're going to get to that next spot yeah and if you don't get there you feel like you're failing and you don't want to tell anybody you're failing you don't want to sit down with the world and say hey guess what i'm i'm not doing this in the time frame that i said i was going to do it right um and that was one of the most difficult things for whitney and to be honest with you 
there's certain artists that I work with and I almost feel like in part ways like that I've the way I've worked and the way I work with certain artists and the way certain artists are that I'm attracted to this thing happens where they go a long period of time sometimes working working getting it going but nothing really happens what I'm saying when I say nothing really happens nothing happens it's like earth shattering like holy shit and then but the the position the chess pieces are put in positions throughout that time mm -hmm. that I know what's going to happen mm -hmm. and then when it happens just everything happens all at once and so it's like it's almost like if I could use the example of a you know in sports it's almost like you're like let's say you know a baseball player and you're playing and you're playing and you're playing and you never played a meaningful game at all and all of a sudden you're called up in September and you're in the World Series mm -hmm. and the pressure is unbelievable when you get to that point because this is your chance you know if you do an audition if you're an actor or an actress or anybody you might feel pressure but the fact is is that you can fuck that audition up and there's another audition the next day right. yes that casting director probably isn't going to bring you in again right away mm -hmm. but the fact is is that if you're a brain surgeon, you can't fuck up one time. You're, you, right. you fuck up one time, you're done. Right. If you're a comedian or an actor or an actress, you can fuck up 99 out of 100 times. That one time you do well, hello, Beth Bears. <laughs> you're on television for seven years mm -hmm. on Two Broke Girls. Mm -hmm. And so that's the thing about our business that's interesting. You being a development executive, and we're going to talk more about this later on, but your job and every development executive's job is steeped in failure. Mm -hmm. There is no possible way in hell that you can win all the time. I was talking to somebody the other day, and I hope he doesn't mind me saying this. A guy who, like you, is well-loved. You probably worked with him, Jeremy Gold. Mm, love him. He's Great now guy. at End Them All Scripted. Now, this is a guy who had a year last year as a television executive at Endemol, which is not known for scripted television. I believe they have one scripted television show on the air on AMC, Hell on Wheels. Mm -hmm. But it came as a, I don't know how exactly it came in, but it was a, it was a weird kind of situation, not, not traditional. So this is a guy whose job it is. All, his only job is to get shows on the air for his company. That's the only way his company can make money and pay back his salary and do whatever. Right. So last year, he has 25 shows that he sold. 25 shows. Now, as Quan will tell you, he probably has heard of, maybe he's heard of that happening, but in my career... I've never heard of anybody selling 25 shows. And when I say selling 25 shows, the process is you pitch the show, the network writes a check minimally, let's say, for the script, for the writer. And maybe they'll spend more 
and give a bigger deal. But let's just say the first step is for the script. Mm -hmm. And then the person writes the script and then the network decides whether they're going to do a pilot or not. And then they shoot the pilot and then the network decides whether they're going to pick it up and go to air. So this guy, 12-month period, sells 25 shows unprecedented mm -hmm. in my mind i'm like man you are the man <laughs> and then he puts his head down and he says well um uh 23 of them didn't get picked up to pilot i said 23 out of 25 he says yes i said okay what happened the other two well they went to pilot i'm like okay well how many mm -hmm. got in the air put his head down it's yeah. like uh now, none of them got picked up. Yeah. I said, so you had arguably the greatest year as a development executive in your life. And then in the end of the year, you got as many shows on the air as a dead guy. <laughs> okay. A cadaver could be in your seat, sitting, taking notes, calling all these people, taking hours and hours of meeting, developing, killing yourself, doing whatever. And at the end of the year, a corpse could have ended up with the exact same result. And, you know, I've known him a long time. We could talk like this. And he said, yeah, it's, it's, I said, are you, are you beaten? Are you, are you frustrated? Do you feel like you're, you know, you don't want to do this anymore? He's like, absolutely not. I'm more excited for this year because this year I'm going to, sell even more and i'm going to get more shows on the air well the thing about that that's interesting is that you know those 25 shows that he didn't get on the air are 25 relationships and experiences that can only grow in time and so you know i don't i don't know if that you know if 25 oh and 25 means a show out completely because i think in this marketplace right now what's really exciting about this time is that there's so many more opportunities i, mean, I was just listening to a, a producer talk about um you know being uh being jealous that like young people today have so much more opportunities because there are tons of opportunities opening up in terms of how you express yourself and tell your stories you know Traditionally, it was the three broadcast networks back in the day, four when you count when you include Fox. And now you have basic cable and pay cable and premium cable and OTTs, which are like the Netflix and Amazons and Yahoo's and Hulu's and who knows what's going to be around. So I think it's a really, you know, I think, it, yeah, those I, don't, I wouldn't say those 25 experiences were for not. Well, that's you interesting know? what you said, because I think that shows people what it's all about and it's all about relationships and if you go in and you show people great work and you show people a great pitch that they're always going to have you back and I guess in the example I used earlier if you're an actor or an actress and you lay an egg in an audition um, you may not be asked back but you can do great work in auditions and still not get things as well, but you create the relationships if you do do the great work and they'll right. bring it back. That's right. Got it. And that's a very, that's a great point. So what I like to do to start off these crazy uh, podcasts is I like to go way, way back, way, way back, way, way back <laughs> to a month or so or whenever it was right before the first vision you ever had of <laughs> being in this crazy business mm -hmm. and... What was it like, your family upbringing, and where were you, and 
how did it all go down <laughs> to take the first step in your mind to be in this business? Well, you know, it, it's funny. Um, you know, I'm an immigrant to this country. My family and I came over from Vietnam at the end of the war in 75. I can't believe it's almost 40 years now to that day. And, you know, growing up in an immigrant home in San Diego, it was about you know, assimilating and acculturating and trying to do everything you could to be part of American culture. And I, I, I blame my parents in some ways for making me be in this business because when we were growing up, they took media to be an important uh, uh, element of our assimilation. And so every time there was a Vietnamese person that did something extraordinary or amazing on television, they highlighted it. So I remember really young as a kid watching um, 21 Jump Street because of Dustin Nguyen, who is a Vietnamese, you know, American actor who starred on that show. And uh, my parents were like, hey, there's a Vietnamese person on TV you got to watch. And I think that love of um, storytelling as a way of transcending, you know, culture race, because I think he played he played a Japanese character. And then it was later revealed in an episode that he was actually really a Vietnamese character pretending to be a Japanese cop because, you know, it was a really you know, cool character. But that was one of the first sort of impressions I had of, you know. Asian Americans being on television and, and, you know, and I would always look for the credits and see like, well, who's making these shows? Who's behind them? I'd never see, you know, anybody that had my name on it. So it was, it was a little bit of like, hmm, I wonder if that's even possible, but I put it in the back of my mind for a long time because it was like, well, that's, I don't know anybody in the business. That's not realistic. You know, you're a son of, you're an immigrant. You should be a doctor or a lawyer, an engineer, or, you know, something that is respectable, quote unquote. Um, but it was really sort of my love of of television growing up and watching a lot of television from, you know, the ABC comedies of Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley. And that was my view of America that got me uh, excited about what the possibilities were in terms of storytelling. This is an interesting thing for me. Like when you watch Happy Days. <laughs> I it, was Richie Cunningham. I wanted a Fonz in my life, you know, to sort of get me out in the world and make me cool, you know, and uh I loved it. It was it was my slice of, you know, American life. Is that what you thought the world was like outside of your circle? I don't know if I was I was so young. I don't know if I, I, I rationalized that, but I felt like it was um a really fun show about a family in an ideal idealized version of American society. I mean, it was done in the, it was set in the fifties. It was made in the seventies. Right. Um, and so I, uh, I loved it. And I think it was maybe like another way of examining how my family life inside my house was different than possibly other people's lives, because I spent a lot of, you know, my, my early childhood translating. And I think it's in some parts why I think I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good at being a development executive because we do a lot of translating and communicating you know, the, the, the words and the ideas of artists to, to the language of business people and executives, you know, but I learned that as a young kid, kind of, you know, being a, uh, a person that translated from my Vietnamese home life to my American school life in many ways and telling my parents, well, this is how they do things in America. And then sort of bring some of that culture to, you know, my friends at, at school in terms of this is how my family is. You said your friends at school, cause again, it's hard to imagine for most of the audience what it's like to be an immigrant. I mean, there are people in the audience that were in the same situation as you, but I think that it would be interesting for the audience to kind of understand, even though you were too young necessarily to remember, but you do know the story of it. Like, 
you know, take a few minutes and explain what it what it's like, the fear, the anxiety for your family, or and and how they can get from their country to the United States, and how where they live, and how they find the money to do what they need to do and make a life for themselves when they don't speak the language or how did that come about? Like, huh? Um, well, you know, I mean, we were, we, we struggled in the beginning. We didn't, we came here without any money because we left Vietnam. We were, you know, had to leave because my dad worked for the South Vietnamese merchant Marines. So he would have been jailed had we stayed. And um, when we settled in San Diego, we didn't have any money. My parents had to relearn skills. My dad had to change a career completely. My mom. But you get to San Diego. Where do you live? Well, we had extended family. A lot of Vietnamese families that were refugees at the time were sponsored by churches and by American families. We had extended family that uh, had come to this country before the war ended. And so we spent the first week, I believe, living with them. And then we got started. Uh, I don't really know how my dad, I think he had a little bit of savings or got a little bit, but he got a job real quickly. And I remember really growing up in the beginning, we we didn't have a car. And I remember um, my mom would, you know, take a, a shopping cart and we would, uh, you know, go to grocery stores with, through a shopping cart and drive to the, you know, pick and save, which was sort of the, you know, cheap uh, 99 cent store version. I don't know if they still have those anymore in San Diego. And I remember we'd buy things there and then come home. And I mean, I was, I was five, so I was fairly still young, but I didn't, I wasn't, I didn't have any want for anything else. It, my parents provided all the things that we, but you didn't speak English. I did not speak English. No. So Nor did they. So were, were you an outcast in your neighborhood in the school? Like, how did you go to how do you go to elementary school when you don't speak English? Yeah, I I think I picked up English fairly quickly. I mean, it's the amazing thing about being young and being um, interested in the world. And I think my mom told me the story that when I came home the first day from school, that I I remembered kids' names already. I was a, an active listener, and I knew and I, I could already come home and be like, oh, this person, this person, this person. She said, how did you even know those names? And I think she, I just was a really active listener as a kid and interested in the world and observed things really well. And and uh, that was helpful. And I watched a lot of t- TV. Quite frankly, I mean, I learned English by watching TV. You know, Big Bird, Sesame Street taught me a lot. And uh, pretty soon it was just, you know, to the point where, like, I think after five years at 10, my parents said, okay, you can't speak English at home anymore. You can only speak Vietnamese at home because I was losing my native language because I was absorbed so much in English and American culture. Uh, whereas in the beginning, they were like, just only speak English. All of us only speak English because we, we have to learn how to, you know, do well here in this country. Um, and so that was the and, – and when – as an immigrant, when you come over – is the thought process for your family, this is the American dream, and I guess what I'm asking is, because I don't know the answer, we all know, I think everybody knows what it takes to get to the next level, it's just whether they're willing to do it or not. It's like Bobby Knight, the great basketball coach, used to say, most people have the will to win few people have the will to prepare to win Mm -hmm. is the philosophy as a family coming over we will not fail we will have a better life here uh i don't know if it was overt but it was definitely you know study hard 
do well in school and you will have a chance to make it in this life, you know? And I think that applied, I mean, the pressure to my brother and I to do, and me to do well in school was uh, intense, but I think they shared the same pressure. I mean, my mom went back to to school in order to get her pharmacy degree because she was a pharmacist in Vietnam. And when she came here, she didn't have the, you know, the license to be a pharmacist. And they had a special program to help a foreign pharmacist, you know, get their American credentials. And so she went back to school. And so she would be up till 2, 3 a.m. studying for her, you know, pharmacy license. And so we looked upon that and said, well, if mom is doing that, what are we doing to contribute? So I think there was that ethos inside our family already to keep, you know, together, we're going to have to work to, you know, make something of ourselves collectively, all of us, and sacrifice and do things. I think that that ethic, that work ethic was passed down fairly early on. Got it. So you're going through the school system, high school, you're preparing for college. You go to what college? I went to Stanford. Stanford. Clearly you worked hard in school. (laughs) And you go to Stanford for what major? Well, you know, I I went to a math, science, computer magnet high school. So I thought, well, I would go and do something in, you know, computers and sciences. And when I got to Stanford, I was blown away by how brilliant those those kids were. And I started having a love for other things. You know, I, I, I started be, being really interested in politics. And so I... Um, as a way of of expressing a voice, you know, and and policy, so I became an American studies major, much to my parents' chagrin. They're like, "What is American studies?" Which qualifies you to drive any cab in the country. <laughs> they said you can. Uh, I said, "Well, I could be a teacher, or I could go to law school," which was sort of my way of saying to them, "Don't worry, I will do something professional with this, you know, humanities, you know, degree," um, and. Uh, I just loved, you know, history and English and political science, which was sort of the combination of those three things. And I actually w- probably would have done, um, you know, ethnic studies had they had that at the time. I don't know if they had that at Stanford at the time, but I was really interested in the history of people of color and where we were in the in the landscape of things. And I wanted to do something to change the world, you know, and I felt like that was my vehicle for doing it. If I could become a lawyer and um, enact, you know, laws and defend the rights for people that was the right noble thing to do obviously the most the the thing that people talk about the most in terms of injustices are are injustices against african-american people or you look at the donald sterling thing that's happening it's it's, things are still prevalent um you, you look about how um people from mexico have been ostracized coming over this country and and also in terms of people from Puerto Rico. As a Vietnamese immigrant, was there racism towards you? Were there people treating you differently as you were coming up in the world? Did people, or is that something that is very rare? You know, I, I was, I don't think I ever encountered uh, overt racism. I encountered a lot of ignorance. And I encountered people who didn't know like what people thinking you were from Hawaii. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a friend of mine told me this story where he was a he was a Vietnamese. He came he left around the same time uh, we did in seventy five. Vietnamese American. He's a producer and a independent film, um, you know, uh, um, scholar. I would say, or, or uh, he works in the independent film space. And uh, his mom was actually pregnant with him on the plane over from Guam to the US and the plane had to land in Hawaii because she was going to labor. And so that's where they ended up settling up <laughs> in Hawaii. So there are Vietnamese people there. Um, I, I would say 
say there was a lot of just, you know, people saying stupid stuff. Like, you know, like I remember like as a kid, like, you know, in East San Diego, I went to this sort of uh, uh, store to pick up some um, incense for my mom because the, there was a Vietnamese temple nearby. It was farther away from our house. And I remember encountering this woman. I was searching down. I was, I think, I don't know how young I was. I was probably in my early teens, but I was going up and down the aisleways looking for you know, incense or something, or I don't think it was even the incense. It was something innocuous, like matches or something like that. And I remember this woman comes up to me and says, are you looking for soy sauce? And I was like, excuse me? Like, no, why would you? Oh, I get why you think that because I'm Asian. You think I'm looking for soy sauce. No, I'm actually looking for matches. Uh, So it's not, you know, it's not overt. Oh. But there is an ignorance and there is an, you know, a, a, you know, uneducatedness about sort of like, you know, Asian Americans are, you know, just like you and me, you know what I mean? We suffer from the same issues. And I think that, you know, that was, there were mo- lots of moments like that growing up where you just shrugged it off as like, well, this poor lady just didn't know anything. But, you know, you when you start to understand the history of where that comes from, you start to understand, okay, well, there is still challenges that every, you know, person of color, African-American, Latino, Asian-American face. And I think, you know, Asian-Americans also have, you know, this sort of model minority myth thing going on for us, which, you know, in the media, everyone's always perceived to be successful. But there's a large part of the population that's in poverty that no one ever talks about. Because if you think about the Asian-American experience, it is not just Japanese and Chinese but there's Cambodian and Vietnamese and Filipino. And, you know, if you just lump everybody in one group, it, it, it's not fair, nor is it indicative of the experiences of the, of people. And so you, you get out of Stanford. How do you revisit the world of entertainment in your mind and what makes you think I'm coming out of this college, I've studied math, I've studied this political science, ethnic studies, but there was nothing in college that was screaming entertainment. So then what happened when you got out to make you want to get into entertainment? Well, I actually moved to Washington, D.C., and I worked for the Justice Department doing, you know, I was a civil rights analyst for the voting section of the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department. And um, so I thought I was going to use that to apply to law schools, and then that'll, that'll just pad my resume, and I'll get into really fancy schmancy law schools and be set. And um, but it wasn't my passion. It was something I thought I felt like I should do, and I and, and it it was my passion to the degree that I felt that being a lawyer might be a means to do the kinds of work I wanted to do. But I think I I started to realize because I loved storytelling, and I loved great storytelling and and I watched a lot of TV and I didn't just sort of watch TV I analyzed it you know I analyzed sort of why people were doing certain things and I, I think the epiphany for me funny enough came um, you know walking down uh, past a newsstand in Washington DC and seeing the cover of Margaret Cho uh, on a broadcasting and cable uh, trade magazine and it was the announcement of All American Girl as you know, a sh- new show that ABC was going to put on and I said oh my gosh in my head there was a light bulb that clicked I was like oh this is possible like we could actually do work in this business and I think that was one of the first sort of trigger points for me to think about well maybe there's a way for me to affect the kind of change or uh, or uh, start the conversation I wanted to have through legal means, but through another medium, which quite frankly, I think today is actually more powerful, you know, because what I learned about the, the certain, certainly the law that I was doing was, you know, at the Justice Department, we were enforcing the Civil Rights Act, 
the voter, I'm sorry, the Voting Rights Act, and we were preventing things from getting worse. You know, and and we weren't making things better. We were just making sure that the people that were doing sort of you know bad voting practices couldn't make things worse. But we weren't proactively changing the world. And I thought, well, you know, maybe it's through media and through storytelling that you'd really have the kind of impact long term that um, you know that that could make a difference. And I, I you know, I, I loved uh, that idea. Because it combined both sort of a creative desire with, you know, the nobility that I was searching for, you know, at the same time. And I figured if I could do those two things, if we could, you know, that might be interesting. And so I think I credit Margaret actually a lot because I loved her comedy. Her comedy spoke to me, you know, as as an immigrant. Um, And I thought she was such an incredible voice, you know, that was. And it's interesting you say that because I've known Margaret my whole life. life in this business and I, I I just think she's really special but when you go to her shows I never felt it to be a show of people who understood that world I felt it was a very alternative crowd I mean it was a crowd that literally you you didn't know if they were gay straight what they what was happening but yeah. you knew they were bonding together around something yeah. well I, like Whitney I think she spoke from a place of being an underdog and I think that's what really appealed to me I remember her her jokes early I mean her, her comedy has evolved certainly but in the beginning when she was doing sort of her, her mother and you know and, and playing around with this notion of like boy um, you know to be Asian American has its benefits, right? She, she, she positioned it not as a negative, but a strength. And she talked about it in terms of like, you know, I remember this joke she had about being at the airport where like, you know, if you didn't want to be bothered by some idiot asking you questions, you could just pretend that you don't speak English, (laughs) you know, and just, Oh, I'm sorry. I don't speak English. And I was like, that is so funny because I could do that if I didn't want to be bothered by some, you know, other, you know, American who wanted to ask me questions, I could just pretend and use, you know, my immigrant <laughs> status for a benefit as opposed to a negative, which I think a lot of times people feel like, well, if you're an immigrant, you're just an outsider. And yet the duality of that made it interesting. And she empowered people to laugh and to think about those things. And I always thought that was great. So you have this great gig in Washington, D.C. You've traveled all the way across the country. You've settled. You're probably in an apartment. You're making some, you know, fairly mm. decent mm. money to pay for the rent. <laughs> mm. First and, job out of college, not so much. But and you're working good. in Washington. Yeah, that was fun. Okay. That was great. Stanford Washington graduate, working in Washington, dream to work in that circle. And then you just, at one point, you make the decision, you know what? I'm going to leave this and I'm going to try to get a job. Well, I don't know if that's exactly right. Well, how did you get the gig at NBC? Well, I, well you know, to be honest with you, I, I, I uh, you know, there was still this pressure to go to law school. Right. And I had applied both my senior year of college and then that first year out of Washington. And quite frankly, I failed. I didn't get in to the schools that I wanted to go to. I got waitlisted, you know, at, at, you know, I think a couple of, of schools I wanted to go to. And I called my parents. I would never think that you would fail at anything like that. 
it happens, you know. No, but but also I was also sort of like you know I didn't really know what I wanted to you do. You should send them all a fruit basket. I, I I should actually I should I, I I really tried hard to get into UCLA and I even sort of uh, met the dean of the law school at one point. I was like, let me use my charm on her to try to get myself into UCLA. I got waitlisted at UCLA, and I called my parents and I said, you know, I think there's another plan. I don't think this is what I'm supposed to do. So I sort of listened to what fate and destiny and the world told me. And I said, well, I'm going to go back. I'm going to move to LA and I'm going to, you know, try to figure out how to navigate this business because uh, it's what I love. And, and, you know, it's, it's funny. My, my friends and colleagues in DC would laugh at me because as much as they were into the politics stuff, they kept hearing from me, Hey, did you see this TV show last night? Like, did you watch that? It was an incredible episode of blah, blah, blah. You know, and say, so like, what are you doing here? Like, you actually have a love for something else. You don't know that yet. You're not admitting to yourself, but you actually love this other thing. And that's what you should do. And I think inspired by them somewhat, I, I moved out here. And, um, you know, I came out here and did a, a public affairs fellowship, which was sort of a legitimate way to come out here because I had to, in a weird way, legitimize everything in my family in terms of what I was doing and had to make sense to them. And um, I did that for a year. It was a great program, an internship program through this organization called the Coral Foundation, where I was uh, doing public affairs work and internships. And then, um, and then I got a job as a PA for ABC News. And this was 19, this was 1995 and ABC news was opening up a unit in LA to cover the OJ Simpson trial. So I worked as a PA for ABC news covering the trial for a year, which was an amazing way to get into TV. Even if it wasn't in the scripted space, we were working on news magazines and, but we were telling stories. I mean, every night we were putting in, you know, a six minute story about what happened, uh, on the case that day. And it was a big learning experience about, you know, um, how to tell story, even through the news medium, because we were working for news magazines. So uh, I did that for a year. And then I got a job as uh, an assistant NBC. Whose desk were you on? I was on uh, uh, Kate Jurgen's desk Kate and, Jurgens, and uh, Robin Schwartz's desk. I had to be an assistant for of both of them. And David Nevins was actually the person that got me into AB NBC because a friend of his was a colleague of mine at ABC News. So I sort of I got to meet some of those people and learned how to become, um, you know, an assistant. Now, obviously, many, many assistants roll through NBC uh, every year. Um, and many of them stay assistants. Many of them get released. Very few move up. Yeah. So now you've you obviously did something there where your work ethic made them believe in you and a position came up in the Saturday morning department Yeah, and you were able to move to that and eventually help with the development with Peter Engel's company of, I believe, was it City Guys was the one or was City it? Guys was the first show I developed. And I mean, a lot of that was, was, you know, I have to attribute to mentors like Robin Schwartz who were incredible. I mean, I was her assistant and then she gave me the opportunity to say, Hey, um, I like your analytical skills. You're smart. You know, would you like to come work with me as my junior executive in the Saturday morning space? 
And I, you know, I, I thought that I wanted to do prime time, but I think I realized that, you know, you have to be flexible and go where the opportunities are open. And I loved working with Robin. I mean, she was an amazing mentor and still is to this day. I call her a friend and a mentor. And we had a great time working on that day part with Peter Engel and uh, Linda Mancuso. Who, who since passed away. Since passed, but we ran Peter's company and was Robin's mentor. So I started to see that, oh, I get how this works. You find great people who you want to hitch your wagon to, who are smart, who get it, and and you learn from them and you help them, and they in turn grow you. And I think Linda grew Robin, and Robin you know, paid it forward and, and grew me. And I think that was a really eye-opening experience for me to understand this is how the business works. Who are, we, who are you growing? Well, I, I'm proud to say that a lot of my assistants that I've had in the past have continued to do really well. Um, you know, uh, David Slevin, who's now an NBC executive, was an assistant of mine. Um, uh, Yvette Urbina, who's an executive, was an assistant of mine. And so I, I take great pride in in trying to nurture, you know, the next generation because I think it's really important. It's so, so important. And uh, one of the things that I, I love so much about this business is I... Anybody who knows me knows that I, I love interns. Uh, it, it, it People, now that this podcast has gone up and it's people seem to like it, I mean, there's enormous requests for internships here, and it's hard to take everybody, but we take more and more each uh, semester, and I, I, I love that. I love working with the young producers I have, uh, like Ari and... And Max and, and and Sarah, who has produced and worked with me in an executive assistant capacity, um, this is her last uh, hmm. podcast and her last day, and uh, she's moving on to work on some extraordinary things with uh, you know the Emmys and uh, these productions of these uh, telecasts uh, and the behind the scenes, which is what she's wanted to do. And it's weird, like, and I'm maybe I'm being too personal here and sharing this odd thing, but I always say to her, uh, as long as she's working here, I, I like management, like television, ride the bull as long as you can. Mm-hmm. And if you have to get off, whenever you have to get off, whatever notice it is, I don't give a shit. I don't care if it might be a little stressful. If you have an opportunity and somebody wants you and they say, listen, if you want this job, you have to be here in 48 hours. I don't care. I want you to win. I want you Mm -hmm. to get to the next level because even though I might experience a little bit of, you know, unique issues with the transition, you're winning and that's why you're here to go. Other people might say, again, the assholes of the business who throw staplers at their assistants mm. and and yell at them and treat them like shit and treat them like you know they've been treated at home or in a sandbox when they were four mm-hmm. will be different and they would say hey listen you're not going anywhere you're not doing this you're not doing that but for me i want to see them move on and it, it's a big part of the business and wherever you are listening and whatever business you're in if you haven't mentored somebody and there is nobody that you've taken under your wing to get to the next level, start because it'll change your life forever. 
Yeah. It's just such an important thing when you hear from these people and you see them and see what they're doing. It just, it's really exciting. Yeah. So, uh, tell me how you went from morning television and made your mark there yeah. to somebody taking a chance and believing in the underdog at Fox and saying, hey, I want you in this department yeah. well, to help I mean, develop scripted comedy. It's the same thing. I mean, after uh, I spent four years at NBC doing Saturday morning and uh, there was an opportunity to go into primetime because David Nevins at that point had gone to Fox to run uh, to run you know Fox programming and he called me and said hey would you like to come work in the comedy department and again it was in part because of a mentorship situation I mean David you know brought me in there Doug that's where I met Doug because Doug had Doug hired Herzog. David Doug Herzog and uh, it was great it was an amazing opportunity to. Um, learn the prime time because that's really what I wanted to do. I mean, I, I have to say that while I was doing the Saturday morning work at NBC, you know, people like Kate were equally generous with letting me tag along with her on sets. And I, you know, I would, I would, I would tag along with her when she'd go to the tapings for Will and, uh, I'm sorry, Will and Grace. Uh, it was for Boston Common where I met, you know, where Max Anthony, and David. Where Anthony Clark where Anthony was. started. And, and that was, and I met Max and David then. So it was, a, it was about people opening their doors and letting me. I was talking about you know, Max Muchnick and David Cohan who created Will and Grace and the Boston Common and, oh God, there was a new show that they just had on that didn't actually make it. But anyway, it doesn't make it. <laughs> um, so again, about these relationships yes. and, but also David Nevins, there were many, many people that work with David Nevins, hundreds of people that work with David Nevins, but he chose you. Because you made him feel safe and you proved to him you were a hard worker and you were a guy he could trust and he didn't have to worry about. And that's why you got the gig. Not just because people don't want to mentor anybody who sucks. Right. Nobody wants to <laughs> nobody want <laughs> nobody wants to mentor anybody and rally around Those somebody who's who average. Suck, do not apply. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's funny. You don't hear many mentors saying, I mentored this guy. He uh, sucks. Where is he? He's uh, he's serving life in prison at San Quentin. Oh, okay. Well good. No. Uh it's like no. when you're a, it's almost like when you're a when you're a parent, you have a child and you're like, you're so proud. You're like, hey, look at my kid there. He weighs a hundred pounds. He's eight. And people are like so proud. You never do that later in life. Like, hey, there's my son, Ralphie, 550. Yeah, that's my guy. You know, you just never. Yeah. So it's that thing. So it's exciting. So it was great. You, so you're developing at Fox. Yep. Tell me some people that you met with with pitches <laughs> that you uh, took the pitch. They might have been a talent. Let's say it was a talent and a comedian or an actor or an actress. You sat down with them. They left the room, closed the door, and you said, boy, don't quit your day job. And they became a huge television star. Oh, my gosh. I don't remember those people. Uh, <laughs> you tend to – I don't think I, I don't think there was any – that's such a hard question because it's like, you know, it makes you think about like, well, who did you let go? And truthfully, I, I, it was never that kind of a decision. It was, it was never that kind of like, you know, I'm, I'm going to want to find them or I'm, I'm going to let someone else find them. It was all about an evolution of like, what's a great idea 
for this network at this time. The reason why I asked, the reason why I asked that, I'll tell you yeah. why I asked that. And, and, and this is common knowledge within the business, but outside our audience mm-hmm. might not know this. Um, Cosby mm-hmm. um, went to ABC, mm-hmm. pitched to ABC. They passed. Mm-hmm. NBC took it. It was the linchpin and the the cornerstone of their resurgence to being number one. Mm-hmm. Uh, NBC got the pitch for Roseanne. They passed. ABC took Roseanne, and that was the cornerstone right. of their resurrection in becoming a number one network. Mm-hmm. So I'm just sort of sta- Steve McPherson, who was here, <laughs> had a fascinating thing. He said he one uh, president of one network told him one time. He said, "Listen." If I just looked back at all the things I passed on and if I greenlit those and took all the things I greenlit and passed on, mm-hmm. I'd be in the same position that's I right. am now. I think do you believe that? Yes, I do, actually, because I don't think it's I think it gives network executives way too much power to sort of say to sort of put that on them to say, like, well, you passed on it and therefore you've you know, you failed and someone else succeeded. I I do think it's about timing and 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 sort of the right elements coming together to make a show successful. And I think. um yeah, no, I don't know. If, I don't know if if there's regrets. I, th- I think it, it. I think it's about sort of the right place and the right time. I mean, that show might not have been successful had uh, ABC passed. Cosby on ABC might not have been successful, and Roseanne on NBC might not have been successful because it wasn't that one decision. I think that made that show successful. The fact that Roseanne was on ABC or that Cosby was on NBC. It was a culmination of other things that happened once they took that on. I think it's easy to sit there and say, well, had um, that show been on, it might have, you know, it it would have changed the fortunes of that network and ergo that network president. But I don't know if that's true. I think that's amazing about you that you have no regrets in terms of a pitch that you passed on that went to, I mean, so many people sit across from me here and talk about things that they were excited. Like for instance, not to keep mentioning Steve McPherson, he talked in detail about taking the pitch for CSI, and it was a it was a deal that was a script deal that was in house at ABC mm-hmm. uh, Studio mm-hmm. Productions. So they had it in house. They go to pitch to him. He says he loves it. Mm-hmm. He wants to go forward, but mm-hmm. the people above him say no. Uh, this isn't something for us. Mm-hmm. And those people have to walk through the hallways in him and go past each other all the time in the hallways. And here it is. It's like the largest franchise probably in history. Mm-hmm. And and they even let go of the production side. They gave that up to somebody else. So they let go of everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, same with Amazing Race. Right. And, and, and so he has to pass the hallways of the people who said no to him. You never had those situations. No, I, w- I mean, there there are certain shows that I wish that I had more involvement in or I wish that I was able to convince my bosses that that was a good idea. But I don't necessarily have bitterness about the fact that they didn't let me, you know, build the next great franchise for their network. I mean, uh, you know, I, I think that that 
you know, feeling of bitterness. Can, I, I just saw this amazing interview that Dave Chappelle had with Maya Angelou on, um, on, uh, it was on YouTube because it was the Iconoclast show and it was yes. their interview and Maya Angelou, God bless her. I mean, soul for, you know, she, uh, talks about the difference between anger and bitterness and how ang- being angry is good because being angry allows you to create and write and being bitter is terrible because it sort of stumps, stops you. And I think that you're, you're speaking a little bit to that notion of like, if I were to walk around the halls and be bitter at my bosses for like, I knew I was right and you were wrong. That's not a productive place. I think to be creatively, I'd rather be angry at them to be like, Oh, you guys, come on. We could have had CSI and we didn't. And Okay, well, it's unfortunate, but then we've got to find our next CSI or whatever that thing is going to turn us around versus holding on to, you know, I don't know. I mean, I try not to live my life that way and, and, and try to, you know, use these sort of, you know, things that don't go well as, you know, a strength and, and to be angry at it, but to not be bitter about it. In 1999, Doug Herzog told me he was in the review uh, where you review the pilots Mm -hmm. and they were making their final decisions. Mm -hmm. And I think it was Peter Chernin and uh, I believe Sandy Grushaw was there at the time. Um, And they were talking about the show Action, which Mm -hmm. I was was the first Mm -hmm. job I ever executive produced with Jay Moore. And uh, they said, listen, we're not going to do this. It's great. It's amazing. But it's it's not going to mm-hmm. we're not going to do this. And Doug stood up and he told me he pounded his fist on the table and he said, you brought me here. You took me here from New York, my job at MTV to make decisions and to put things on the air. I'm here and I want this on the air. Mm-hmm. And if you don't put this on the air why don't you just send me back to New York because mm-hmm. we have to take risks. We have to do things like right. this to go forward. Right. Tell me any show or any instance where you were in a meeting where you were so passionate about something, you went toe to toe with your bosses on mm. and what was the result? Mm. Um, well, I mean, there've been many cases where I've, you know, I mean, fought for things. I really believed in things or, or tried to use sort of their language to convince them of something. You know, I remember telling this story yesterday when we were working on, uh, the house pilot, you know, and, and house was a really odd pilot for Fox because Fox was the home of young, youthful 90210, Ally McBeal, Melrose place. Right. And we really had to sort of say the pilot as is. You know, a serious minded, uh, you know, looking show about a cantankerous 40 something year old, you know, doctor was actually the right show for Fox because it actually had all the attributes of the biggest Fox character. And, you know, my colleagues in the drama department and I sat around and said, you know, we've got to figure out how to convince our bosses that this show belongs on this network, you know, and and go toe to toe with them on it because they were I would say that they were concerned about like, how does this fit on the Fox schedule? And, you know, we just looked inside that show and said, if the attributes of this character, what makes us love him, you know, terrible bedside manner, cranky, (laughs) doesn't suffer fools lightly. It's because he wants to find the cure. Right. And we internalized sort of said, well, wait a minute, how is that not unlike the most successful character on the Fox Network right now? And we literally said to each other, if Simon Cow were a doctor, he'd be house. And we went to our bosses and all the people inside the company and position the show that way to say, if Simon Cow were a doctor, he'd be house. And that's why this show belongs on the Fox Network. It has the same attitude, the same, um, you know, um, 
anti, you know, s- s- social sort of, you know, quality, but ultimately was a great character that wanted to sort of find the cure, much like Simon wants to find the best singer in America. And so, uh, you know, we we went up against that and we, you know, we tried to sort of sell that show internally. And I think that's why everyone started buying into that show. I don't know if I sort of screamed at the top of my lungs that this show had to be on, but I fought for it and I believe that that's the right way to sell it. And I think it was effective. And there've been many other instances too, where, you know, we, uh, you know, we just, you fight for things you believe in because you, you believe that the, the author deserves that the creator deserves some, someone inside that system to fight for them in the best way possible. You turn the no into a yes. Yeah, you always turn a note because you're, you know, the thing that people don't understand is when you're a development executive inside the network, you know, they think you're a buyer when you're at the network. In many ways, you're selling yourself as well because you're selling everyone internally from the sales department to the marketing people to your bosses that that's what, you know, is right for the network. Tell me the first time somebody came into a meeting, a pitch where you saw it on the calendar. And in your mind, you're like, holy shit, I'm going to be in a room with this guy. And you were like, you felt a little anxiety, like this, this is a behemoth coming in here. And, and, uh, and I want to be. Yeah, I'm trying to think, I'm trying to think of who. I've had a lot of those experiences because, I mean, a lot of these people, like, you know their histories and you know their stories and you know, you know, like, I just had a, a meeting with um, Stephen Bochco, who I, like, I'm a huge fan of and I was trying to be, like, professional. <laughs> I'm a studio, you know, head now. I should be. But, but I mean, he's someone who dictated a lot of the shows I watched growing up and had an impact on it. It was really great to be able to, you know, speak with someone and just hear their stories in addition to just getting to know them as not the name behind executive producer of Hill Street Blues, but just like an interesting creator. It's weird, you know, know? the impact that he had on me that he'd probably like fall off the chair here was cop rock. (laughs) Yeah. Because I just thought to myself when that came out, I just was like, man, I know the guy has all the money in the world and is successful and it's easier to take risks when you're... But the man sold a show that had never been done before yeah. in the history of the world. Mm-hmm. And he sold it. He pushed it. He took the risk. He went out. It was filled with great actors and great people. It didn't work. Mm-hmm. It was ahead of its time. Mm-hmm. But he went for it. And that, to me, unbelievably, is probably my the big thing I always think of when I think about yeah, him. I, I, I love that he took that chance. You know, I love that he had the, you know, the, the, desire and means and, and, and ability to do something different. Cause I think it takes that. I really believe it takes that kind of risk to do something great. I mean, Mitch was that way with arrested too. I mean, Mitch he took a huge risk though. Truthfully, it, you know, it was so in his wheelhouse, that show, it was who he is inherently. And we've talked about this before about why shows work and mm-hmm. why they don't work. And I have this like strong philosophy about it and Mm -hmm. i don't know if you agree or disagree with me but i hope you don't mind me uh, rehashing it for a minute here in drama Mm -hmm. the lead character normally the most successful shows the lead character is not huggable and lovable but they are 
lovable in a sense from far. And, you know, you, there's qualities about them you love to hate or you love to just, but you don't really necessarily want to be a friend with that person. Mm -hmm. But you want to sort of look at them from afar like a voyeur. And in the dramas, you have these main characters at the center, and then the characters around them are slightly more lovable and huggable as you go up down the chain. Normally, the person who's not on camera the most mm -hmm. is the most huggable, lovable, <laughs> and the person who's on camera the most isn't. Again, like Nurse Jackie, for mm -hmm. instance. Mm -hmm. The person who's not on camera the most who's the most huggable and lovable is the girl who just won the Emmy Award. Merritt I'm Weaver. So, Merritt Weaver. Yeah. In comedy, if your main character is not huggable and lovable, you're dead in half-hour comedy. Mm -hmm. It's 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 over for you. Now, granted... Is Louis? There's examples of... <laughs> there's examples of, of, of comedies on cable like Louis yeah, where you don't brilliant. look at him as huggable and lovable. But I think Louis would agree if he were sitting here. He wrote a niche show. Mm. That's not a. That's not a. Louis is not a mainstream uh, show. And then, and if, if you have a chance, anybody listening, I I implore you, I beg you to find on YouTube a seven and a half minute clip of uh, the final episode uh, entitled, I believe it's called Fat Girl, mm -hmm. where mm -hmm. he has a Genius scene episode. Genius. with a brilliant, Sarah brilliant, Baker? yes, Sarah Weaver, um, no, uh, Sarah, Sarah something, Sarah Baker, Sarah Baker, um, an amazing actress. And the scene that I will describe to you is basically... Louis puts himself in a position as a writer and executive producer and director where he probably has 10% of the lines, maybe 15%. It is shot with one camera, one take, seven and a half minutes. And it's a, an amazing study. And if you are out there and you are an actress, a comedian, uh, a writer... And you, somebody says, hey, what are you doing? Ah, oh, well, I'm trying to get this thing together and shoot it. You know, listen, get out. Just get out of the fucking business. Because if you can't write something and shoot something after seeing this, it won't. It may not be as brilliant as this thing. But this was evidence to me that anyone, if you want to, can write something and shoot something. Two people, one camera, one take. Yeah. And... If you were to shoot this, you could send it to anybody and go anywhere. But I'm digressing because I want to get back. Because you look at the characters on half-hour comedy, likable, lovable, Seinfeld, lovable, friends, lovable, uh, you know, um, everybody loves Raymond, lovable, huggable. Um, it's just, you go down, even Roseanne, mm -hmm. lovable, huggable, mm -hmm. uh, John Goodman, you know, you can go Tim Allen, Home Improvement, uh, any sitcom, Modern Family, all huggable. And even the characters are a little bit huggable and lovable. Mm -hmm. And so the shows that don't tend to work on network television are the ones where the characters are not huggable and lovable. Uh, Action being the first one I was mm -hmm. involved in. Whitney being the second, the, the the last one that I was involved in, I truly believe that the reason why Whitney didn't work 
is when you're casting a show and when you're involved and you are an executive producer mm-hmm. and you are so, uh, I, I say this with so much sincerity, if you are out there and you want to get into business with anybody who's talent friendly and who works tirelessly and kills themselves and is one of the best executive producers in the business, you want to work with Quan Fung. He's just amazing, amazing man at keeping everything on the tracks. Incredible. But what happens when you're casting, sometimes you make these decisions. It's almost like the NFL draft. Do we take the best person on the board, no matter what position they are, or do we take the most huggable and lovable person that's the best person in that position? Mm -hmm. And in my humble opinion, the first season... Every single character on the show was not 100% huggable and lovable. And in the second season of the show, there was only one person that was 100% huggable and lovable, and that was Tone Bell. Mm. And in my opinion, that's why the show didn't get a huge audience. Mm -hmm. I feel like we had great actors, incredible incredible actors but the way the characters were and the way they were acted it didn't make you want to hug them and i think america on network television wants a group of people that you can hug Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. what do you feel about that well i i think that the 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 world's changing in the sense of like, you know, we're not just making network television shows anymore. You know, I think maybe it was in the wrong place at the wrong time, that show. I mean, it was a reflection of what Whitney wanted to say and do. And I think that's totally legitimate. And maybe it shouldn't have been on NBC. Maybe it shouldn't have been a multi-camera. But we chose those things because we were trying to get the biggest audience possible. And, you know, maybe we made some, would have made some different choices that, but I I don't believe that there's one rule anymore about how you make good television. You know, I think you make television that's true to the voice of the artist and then you hopefully find the right place. that's going to embrace that in the right way. Because I think if the standard is just, let's just make sure that we only do stuff that's huggable, if you will, or cast things that are just, you know, it it doesn't service every artist that's out there, is I, I guess what I'm saying, you know, because I mean, Louis is a great example. He tried network television shows. You know, he had to deal with CBS for a long time. He found his voice with this show on FX in a brilliant way. And it took a long time to do it, but he did, you know, um, and I think that that's what artists should strive to do. You know, I don't I I, I, I hasten to think about certain rules for certain ways that things get done because I'm not sure any of those rules apply to anymore. It's specifically because we live in a world now where people don't necessarily only have three or four places in which they can find the things that they identify with. You know, I know so many famous people on YouTube that mainstream America doesn't know. And they have an audience on YouTube that is young and active and engaged in a way that network television, I think, used to be in the 70s and 80s, um, that, you know, maybe their career isn't necessarily to translate over to a higher medium. Maybe they can build that profile and their their brand that way. And I think that's what's exciting about the time that we're living in right now. It's just about true finding the artist's true voice and then helping them, all of us, you know, those of us that are in the business place them in the place where they're going to be allowed to be themselves. 
Now, your new job at Slingshot, talk about your vision. Mm-hmm. What does a year from now look like if your vision comes to fruition? Well, I mean, I think the vision is is one that is simple, which is, you know, we want to try to connect great storytellers to a global audience that wants to find them in the most successful way, accessible way. And, and, and with that, I mean, we want to help artists identify their true voice because I think the world is, is more open now. I mean, but just domestically and internet, cause we're a global company. We have to find content that will play all around the world. But I think that's possible because we're getting, you know, more and more global. I mean, corporations are global now. Um, you know, the, the, the idea that a, a, a French subtitled show could be on Sundance channel and have people talking about, it. I mean, the returned, I don't know if I could have imagined that when I first started in this business, the idea of a subtitled show that people like and are talking about. No, it's not huge numbers. It's not like 20 million people that watch CSI, but those, you know, I don't know if we're ever going to find like 40, 50 million viewers of friends anymore. You know, uh, it, you know, I, I think that people have lots of different choices now. So I think the ability to be specific and artisanal in the way we approach content is really exciting and to have it be able to play worldwide so that there's a show that maybe starts in another country and then comes here and that we embrace it because there is an American, you know, identity in it as well. Um, so practically speaking, I would love to have two shows on the air next year. You know, we're pursuing a direct to series model, which is a higher bar because we have to, you know, we're not just doing pilots because I really Define for our audience direct the series. Yeah, I mean, I think we're hoping to build projects and packages that are so undeniably compelling that a network, uh, a cable network, uh, an an OTT, an Amazon, Netflix decides that they're going to order 10 episodes uh, straight and allow the writer to really have the ability to tell their stories in the right way and not necessarily have to throw everything but the kitchen sink into the pilot because I think that's hurt some of the storytelling that we've done, you know, um, it, it, it's become a little predictable in some ways. And I think the beauty of great storytelling is that is to be unpredictable. True. Tell me, tell me one comedy and one drama that's on the air now that if nobody knew about it, you would say, that's the kind of show that I want to do at slingshot global media. Well, I mean, I think my, my favorite, um, I mean, my favorite comedy is veep. Right now, I think Veep's a brilliant show, and it you know I think it's a it's such a I mean a it's a combination of amazing writing, insight into a world and a specificity of a world that clearly the creators know about, and a performance from Julia and the ensemble that is you know so layered and dimensionalized. A performance from Julia after many many attempts at television where it didn't work. When I saw that first season and that was there was an episode when she reacted to I think the president um you know being incapacitated or going down and she had the possibility of becoming president she didn't use words her face and her reaction of both joy and fear and and like excitement but I should be responsible and just act it was such a brilliant reaction that I'm like she's gonna win an Emmy off that reaction it reminded me of the reaction of Annette Benning at the table and I was it the kids are all right or mm-hmm. whatever, where she found out that her 
lover. Oh, was, yes. Oh, fantastic. Right. And you said, Genius. Unbelievable. unbelievable. And tell me a drama that you would do. I do love political stuff. I do love House of Cards. I think, you know, both Kevin Spacey and Robin Wright's performance is incredible. But I also think a show like Orange is the New Black is incredible because it is breaking the rules of what, you know, a drama should look like. You know, it's not a straight procedural. It doesn't live in a conventional sort of cop doctor law world, but it is talking about society and us, even though it's a bunch of women in a prison, it's still talking about society. And I think that it's its ability to show the many colors of, you know, women of color and their stories is phenomenal. I'm excited to watch the second season. I think it's starting this Friday. Awesome. Um, a little word association here. Well, just a little word or two about these names that I'm going to throw out to you. Mm-hmm. Um, Peter Engel. <laughs> uh Ahead of his time. Scott Stuber. Oh, um, ambassador. Peter Chernin. Um, uh, smart. Uh, Bob Greenblatt. Theatrical. <laughs> <laughs> I love that about Bob. I love that, by the way, I love that he was bold enough to say, I'm going to put on Sound of Music on NBC because he, he has made that network, you know, into his, you know, the things that he loves, and he's a passionate creator. Whitney Cummings. Underdog. Cool. Uh, tell me your uh, biggest disappointment professionally. My biggest disappointment professionally. Hmm. Gosh, I'm trying to be introspective here. What, what has been... I've had a very, very good career. So I think my biggest disappointment professionally has been, um, you know, the times that, you know... I haven't been able to sort of be disruptive and change the business yet from the inside. You know, I mean, uh, there are shows I wish that I, you know, could have been either the champion of or the, uh, you know, um, leader of, you know, but at the time the society wasn't ready. I mean, I'm, I'm excited about fresh off the boat, you know, getting back to sort of the all American girl conversation. I think it's a really great show. And I think the Nacha Khan and, and, um, the people behind that show are going to make something really revolutionary and different because it's being told from a different point of view and an honest one and an honest immigrant. One. I wish I could have been able to be involved in that show. I mean, you know, I have a lot of friends in it and I'm supporting of it, uh, of it. Uh, and I think that's the kind of show that going forward, I think we have to endeavor to try to, to make and find voices that aren't given traditionally given that voice, you know, and I hope it works on network television you know, I hope that people embrace, you know, an Asian American family on network television. But if it doesn't, I wouldn't say that that's the end all and be all because maybe that voice should be found somewhere else, you know, in this sort of new environment and world that we're living in. Your proudest moment professionally? Uh, my proudest moment was, was How I Met Your Mother and the experience of working on that show with Carter and Craig and building that show into the sort of, you know, developing that show, selling that show, landing it ironically or interestingly enough in the right network at CBS, which who nurtured it, you know, who at the time you never thought a young, uh, friends like ensemble would work at CBS, but credit to Nina and Wendy, uh, Nina, Nina Tassler and Wendy Trilling for really supporting that show and Julie Pernworth for supporting that show and loving it. Great executives, amazing executives. And I mean, that was one of my proudest achievements as an executive is is getting involved in the development of that show because Carter and Craig had never really done it before. They'd staffed. They were really great writers, but they'd never gone through that process. And the way in which we nurtured that show at the studio and helped 
you know, um, them find their voice and allow them to express themselves and then finding the right network that actually supported that was uh, a really fulfilling experience. And to sort of see that show finish and end after a nine year run, you know, this last year, um, you know, I watched uh, the finale and I emailed or tweeted Carter and Craig afterwards the next day. And I said, that was exactly the ending that I would have expected you guys to do. And I know people who love the show had issues with it. I know it was controversial, whatever, but I was really proud of them for doing the ending that they felt that they wanted to do. Um, and it was exactly what I expected of them. The greatest part about your final episode on television is that it doesn't matter what anybody thinks. Mm. You've done it and you get to go out the way you want to go out and no one can stop you. Last question, what advice do you have for the young artist out there struggling, trying to get the attention of somebody like you, trying to work their way up as a writer, director, uh, on-camera personality to get to the next level? And firstly, what advice do you have for the young executive who is in Washington, D.C., living in a studio apartment, not knowing what to do and wants to get in the business to get to your level where you are? Well, I think I think you, you can only be great at something that you're that you love and you're passionate. I've been really lucky to, to be able to have the the freedom to listen to my voice and, and pursue the things that I love. And whether you are, you know, a, a struggling artist or, you know, someone who wants to become an executive, um, find the thing that you love and keep working at it and keep driving at it. And, you know, at some point you always are going to have to reevaluate if this is really the thing that you love, you know, enough doors sometimes closed. You, you have to wonder like, is this the right thing for me? I mean, when law school was not the thing that was open to me, I had to reevaluate and say, well, what's another thing I loved? It turned out to be storytelling. And so, you know, I don't want to say, um, you can make it if you work hard. I think that's just you know, naive. I think you have to have some, um, skill at it and, 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 and hit knowledge of it and history of it and to know where it comes from. But I think if you, you will have that knowledge, if you truly indeed love it, um, because you'll work harder at it, you'll spend nights thinking about it. You'll wake up. I mean, I've had many times where I have uh, woken up in the middle of the night. My wife will laugh at me where I'll wake up in the middle of the night and I'll go, Oh, I think I have the perfect, ca perfect casting idea for this part. She's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> She's like, I, I, mean, I don't know. In my dream, I thought about this <laughs> and it came up and I'm like, let's go after this person. And I, I don't know if that's normal, but I think it's indicative of someone who is, you know, thinking about the art and the craft and the work that we do. And it, it has impacted me in a way where I dream about it. And I come up the next day, I'm like, well, let's try to pursue this idea or let's take this chance and let's you know, chase down this uh, storyteller to see if there's a story here. That's the advice I would give is just, you know, love what you do and then you'll be good at it. Awesome. Juan, this has been amazing. I appreciate you coming. You are a truly an extraordinary man. And I mean that. And every time I see you, I feel like you are huggable <laughs> and lovable. Where's my Where's my sitcom? Uh, where's my sitcom? Sorry, no, it's thank you. Have actually, a guest no, thank you. you no, 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 thank you. No, but I'd rather be behind the behind the scenes. But um, that it uh, it's thank you for having me. It's been fun. As always, uh, this is another episode of Industry Standard with me, uh, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. <laughs> Thank you.
They say it's the glory I'll scream your name Put you on shoulders Walk you to fame You'll get all the money Drive that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going for Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.